This morning, we're going to pay tribute in our profile segment to someone who a lot of people may not know about. Uh, William Cooper is his name. He was an Indigenous activist who was around in the 1930s. He was a Yorta Yorta man, and he petitioned the king for uh, parliamentary representation uh, for the Indigenous people of this country. This is back in the 30s, remember. He was almost petitioning for a voice to Parliament, one might say. Um, One of the things he did that was of a lot of interest and got a bit of attention and is well remembered was that he led a protest to the German embassy in the 30s during the rise of fascism to protest at how the Jewish people were being treated. He saw their stories as not dissimilar to his. So to pay tribute and to talk all about the life and times of William Cooper this morning, we're joined by Daniel James, who's a Yorta Yorta writer and a broadcaster. He's currently working on a book all about William Cooper. Very good morning, Daniel. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Pav. Good to be here. Now, you must be very proud. He's uh, You're related to the man. He's an incredible human being with what he achieved. Yeah, he's been um, he's been a hero within you know the Yorta Yorta community and and my um, you know family circles for as long as I um, remember. And he is it's good to see him sort of gradually sort of seeping into public consciousness for some of the um, the deeds and acts that he did that were um, you know now in retrospect um, ahead of his time. Most certainly, um, you know, if you think about the basically he was petitioning for a voice to Parliament. This is almost a hundred years before the referendum we're facing now. Um, it's a, a man with, with a great vision and a man who took up a need that he saw and felt passionately. Yeah, he was the um, the, the, the founding um, uh, secretary of the Australian Aborigines League, which was established in the, um, the early 30s. And by this stage, he was um, quite an old man because he was born in either 1860 or 1861, we can't be too sure because he, there's no birth certificate for him. Um, yeah. But by, by this time, he was quite an old man. He he had, um, you know, reached retirement age yeah. um, and um, decided to move from, you know, um, where he was at the time, which was um, on, on Yorta Yorta country, to move to uh, Footscray where there was, a, a you know, a gathering number of uh, Aboriginal people who had been coming off the missions from around Victoria. Yep. And so there was kind of like a, um, a bit of a critical mass of Aboriginal people in places like Footscray and Fitzroy. So he decided to move to Foot- Footscray and um, establish the league. And um, it was really there in the, the last bit of his life that his um, activism in a, in a full-time sense sort of sort of took off. Which is amazing, really. So after the tough life he'd lived... And he was, mm. he was a shearer, he was working, around, working on rural properties and stuff. At, at, at the age of 70, he decided he was going to make a difference and he started a very successful campaign, or several very successful campaigns and lobbying attempts. An amazing thing for someone to do at his age when you think he'd just be, be winding back, but no, he stepped up. Well, you know, if, if I think of myself at that age, um, I'd, I'd certainly be trying to sit back and just um, wind back a little bit. But he... he his major, I guess, advocacy sort of effort within his life was petitioning the king for that representation for uh, Aboriginal seats in the federal parliament. And that didn't just involve him um, sending minions out to receive uh, signatures for that for that petition. He actually literally travelled around the country from state to state huh. um, trying to gather signatures from uh, Aboriginal people all over the country, which were um, eventually, you know, um, received. And, you know, there was a lot of people who were just marking their name with um, X because they were um, illiterate. 
Um, but that petition was actually presented to the Prime Minister. William Cooper had met with the Prime Minister at the time. And um, unfortunately, the, the government of the day decided not to forward that petition uh, onto the King. So one of the great frustrations of his life, and there were, there were a number, um, was the fact that he went to that effort to, to gather yeah. all those um, signatures. But unfortunately, the uh, the government of the day decided, first of all, not to pass them, pass them on to the, uh, to, to the King, but also not to um, act on them. Um, in any way, shape, or form, yeah, which was did, one of the great frustrations of his life. I bet it was. Just basically ignored them altogether. Um, and, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. And the the fact that um, a lot of the signatures were marked with X were, you know, raised eyebrows, and um, people were sort of, you know, the politicians of the day and the bureaucrats of the day were concerned that the uh, the signatures weren't legit, but. Um, but they were just because people couldn't couldn't yeah. um, sign their name. Look, one of the things that struck me about William Cooper is actually his writing. I he wrote better than a lot of the colonial uh, settlers would have written at the day. I think I was quite amazed at the level of uh, you know accuracy in his English in his writing. I mean, he's a pretty smart cookie. Yeah, he came off. Um, he's, he, he he spent time on um, two missions as a, as a relatively young man. One was. Um, um, called Maloga, which was set up by the missionaries uh, Janet and uh, Daniel Matthews. And he was there for a time. He was the last in his family to convert to uh, Christianity. Um, apparently it took some um, persuading, which is, um, you know, an interesting sort of insight into the into the bloke's character. Um, but then he also was um, um, a founding member of uh, the Cumbergunja Mission. And during both of those times, there was, and you know, um, this is another sort of uh, family um, insight and um, inroad that I have into the story, was um, there was uh, the uh, the school teacher of the time um, who was um, uh, Thomas James, which is, you know, my grandfather times a number of greats. Um, and he was actually a, um, uh, a Mauritian. And he taught a lot of the advocates that came off Kamaragunja uh, how to read and write and was a schoolmaster there for about 30 or so years and was actually a contemporary of um, uh, William Cooper. So he was actually providing him with um, adult lessons in, in literacy and, and numeracy. And uh, I think he obviously did a fairly good job because it, it does show up in his, in his writing and um, um, the way that he was actually also able to... Um, speak to to people as well. Yeah. Apparently, he's 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 speaking in um, uh, to his public speaking in particular was, um, um, if not more powerful than than his writing. I can imagine that too. You mentioned Kamragunja there. Uh, that was the area he was actually he lobbied the government to get some land set aside for the indigenous peoples in uh, northeastern Victoria. Uh, that part of the world, anyway, in southern New South yeah. Wales, there. Um, that uh, it took a fair bit of lobbying, but eventually they did hand out some land, didn't they, to that area? Yeah, that's right. When he was, it's known as the um, uh, Maloga petition, that, and it was uh, signed by a number of um, uh, people off the the, the, um, the mission at, at Maloga who wanted a parcel of land for themselves. They could see what was happening. Around them, they could see that land was being cleared and the farms were being established either to grow wheat or, or, or to have cattle or sheep on um, on the land. And they wanted to, um, I guess for want of a better term, they wanted to, in their minds and in, I guess, the, the, the mind of the times, alleviate the state from the burden of their um, uh, care and support. And yeah. these, these, 
these are sort of like the the, the this is in the petition they they use the term alleviate um, the state, and so what they wanted to do is they wanted um, a parcel of their own land <laughs> to um, uh, to clear and to work and to be able to become self uh, sustainable, and that's what um, Kamragunja actually became. So they moved off Maloga. They um, they relocated the the schoolhouse that was at Maloga on Kamragunja, which is still there today, um, and started working and toiling on that land. But um, unfortunately, uh, uh, what happened is the uh, um, Aborigines Protection um, Association in um, New South Wales basically was established at around about 1880, and it used the examples of what was happening in Victoria as a lead to the way it would conduct business. And so it became um, a, a really centralised bureaucracy, which was um, based in Sydney, so a long way from Camaragunja, uh, which is on the banks of um, the Murray um, near Barmer. And over time, um, our local pastoralists started lobbying the government and in turn, the government started um, influencing the um, Protection Association. And that land was actually taken back by the government and given to local pastoralists um, uh, probably about 10 or 15 years after the land had been cleared. So it was a, um, it was a, um, you know, I, I guess a broken promise in a way from, um, from, from the government. But after all that work had was. been done. What's, what's, where's, what's at Cumragunja now? So the school, um, so there's still a mission there. Um, it's run by the the, the Kamragunja, um, uh Mission Trust, I believe it's called. Um, the schoolhouse is there. It's a beautiful part of um, the Murray. It's on this sweeping bend, um, just near um, uh, the little township of um, um, Barma. And you can actually go there. The, the William Cooper is actually buried there now, um, with a number of other uh, great um, Aboriginal activists um, that came after him, including Pastor Sir Doug Nichols and his wife. Um, um, and um, the cemetery's still there. There are there are a whole bunch of um, great um, Aboriginal families that have you know um, uh, loved ones that are in that cemetery. Yep. But the schoolhouse is still there, and there are a number of people still living on on the mission. But um, okay. yeah, it's a fascinating part of uh, the world. Yeah, look, we'll come back to the family in just a second. I've got a text here uh, from Rod Sinclair. It says, "Could you please ask your guest where is Yorta Yorta land? Uh, yeah, what what's the boundaries? What defines Yorta Yorta land?" So um, I guess the, 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 the heart and centre of Yorta Yorta country is um, the, uh, the junction of the, the Goulburn and, and the Murray River um, going across to um, the Capaspe River. So um, the heart of that was kind of like where the township of um, Achuca is and then it went from south from there to... Um, um, uh, places like um, uh, Benalla, um, or some say almost far as south as, as Urawa, um, but places like Shepparton and Marupna in particular, which um, uh, became heavily populated by uh, Aboriginal people as they walked off the mission, um, Cameron in 1938. Um, so it's that part of the world there, and um, it, it borders uh, Bangarang country and Jajarung country, and um, to the north, um, uh, Wiradjuri country to a certain extent right. as well. Okay, so in that sort of north northeast part of Victoria, there 
Hopefully yeah. that, that answers you, Rod. Oh, look, I just wanted to go back, Daniel, a little bit to talk about this petition that was collected that it was intended to be handed to the King, uh, King George IV. Never got there because, as you said, Joseph Lyons basically didn't pass it on. That's right. There is a bit of a more to that story, isn't there? Because I believe years later that some of the descendants of William Cooper actually did manage to pass that the letter, at least that was associated with that petition, on to Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, it was um, uh, probably it wasn't the, the the letter. It's oh, it was it was a version of the letter. I mean, I guess it wasn't the original copy, but um, it was um, passed on to uh, Prince William by uh, 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 William Cooper's um, nephew, um, uh, Uncle um, Arthur Arthur um, Bordy Boyd, who is still alive. Um, he's probably. The eldest uh, living Yorta Yorta man there is. He's in his um, early nineties now. Still very sprightly. Still hmm. um, very up and about. But yeah, I think that was passed to him in about to to Prince William at the time in about two thousand and six. Um, so you know, the, <laughs> I think it's uh, Martin that, that would have been when they, that, that would have been when he came to Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, so it was done in Australia, yeah. um, and it's just proof of the fact that that sort of that Martin Luther King sort of quote where he says the arc of justice is uh, is long but it bends towards um, oh, the arc of um, justice. I can't, I can't remember. It's very early in the morning. Pat. It sounds like a good quote, though, Daniel. We're going to have <laughs> to look that one But it's a good quote, yeah. If, 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 you, if you Google it, um, Martin Luther King, arc of justice, it's a, it's a beautiful quote. You, you won't forget it. All right, we'll see what we can do, mate. We'll find it, and it does sound like a great quote. So it certainly was that time. So it... Uh, it Years later, when William uh, came to this country to visit, and the there was basically the petition or the letter was handed on to him. Was that the same trip where they asked if the if elders approached the prince to ask him if they could find out where Pamela's head is lost? Oh yeah, that would have been. I'm not sure it was whether it would have been that trip, but um, there's been a um, you know a long history of sort of that repatriation of um, human um, Aboriginal human remains and artifacts back into the country. So um, it wouldn't surprise me if if it was raised when he was here last for sure. Now you went you mentioned before how he converted to Christianity. Uh, I believe he was heavily influenced by certain sections of the Bible, in, in particular the the Old Testament and. Had it felt a bit of solidarity with the, the Jewish story or the Israeli story within the Old Testament? Yeah, that's 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 right. They're, they're certainly um, uh, they were certainly taught, taught the Old Testament um, up in Maloga by the the, the, um, the like I said the missionaries uh, Daniel and uh, Janet Matthews, um, and I guess that led to you know. Um, when war came, or when war was approaching the Second World War, uh, it must have led to some sort of affinity with um, what they identified the the uh, Australian Aborigines League identified as another persecuted minority on the other side of the world. It's also important to remember um, at the time um, after the Depression, between wars, it was a very very political time too. And I think that the league was really developing its sort of nous in terms of being able to draw attention to their own cause. And so um, that eventually um, materialised in in the march. Um, uh, Some say it was a march. Some say it was um, a protest. Um, But um, a protest outside the German consulate in Collins Street um, in 
1933, I think it was, yeah. or 30, 38. Um, um, the consulate refused to accept the petition or what they were trying to hand over. I've got to look, I've got a couple of texts here that says, um, uh, was the Crystal Knight that William called out the na- uh, the night the Nazi right. the Nazis publicity uh, brought their genocidal agenda out? Only William spoke up. That's from James in the ditch. So it was actually time to coincide with a publicity statement brought up by the Nazis. But and it was, I mean, he was a very brave man. He was there weren't many people speaking up against the anti-fascism of the in the early thirties. But certainly, Dan, he was uh, Daniel. He was front and center. William Cooper. Yeah, well, certainly, certainly wasn't um, anyone from another sort of persecuted group within Australia that was was speaking up. Um, uh, he, I often, we often speculated and wondered, well, how did how did he how did they find out about Crystal Knight? And um, uh, doing some research for for, for, for the book, um, what is sort of not realised is that it was really um, uh, well it was well covered by. Um, uh, the papers of the time, particularly the, the the Argus, which no longer exists in Melbourne, and they were actually conducting interviews with um, Jewish people. They're actually fleeing Europe and coming to Australia via the port of uh, Darwin. Okay, and those and those um, interviews were were well covered, so they would have read about it. And it was actually better covered than we, you know, um, have been led to believe. And so, um, yeah, they, they marched on uh, the, the German consulate and um, all that we know about it is that um, a, a, a delegation from the Australian Aborigines League turned up with a petition that was refused to be received um, by, by the German consulate, but it ended up in um, the, the Argus paper the next day. So they obviously were also smart enough to organise mm-hmm. um, a journalist to be there and um, witness it. So um, it raised the um, profile of what was happening to um, uh, the Jewish people in Europe, but at the same time, um, and, and in a sort of a, a smart sort of, um, you know, wise way, um, it also raised what was happening to yeah. uh, Aboriginal people in, in, in this country as well. It brought, brought attention to the plight of the Indigenous people in this country who was facing similar sort of persecution, which is right. Now, it should be uh, mentioned as well that, the the country of Israel very grateful, and they certainly have uh, fond or want to remember the moment historically, and they've spent a bit of effort to say thank you to the descendants or to your, your family, Daniel James, in many ways, and you know they've yeah. certainly respect William Cooper's stance. Yeah, they've planted a tree in in Israel um, for recognition of um, his efforts. Um, there's um, uh, been a number of, I mean, the Jewish community and uh, the Yorta Yorta community in particular um, are, are very close, and um, there's a lot of uh, admiration between uh, between us and um, the Jewish community down here as well. But also, um, as a sort of a postscript to it all, the, the uncle um, uh, Bordy, who I, who I mentioned earlier, um, who was William Cooper's um, nephew, was, was able to... Um, uh, give a version of um, the petition or the statement that the Australian Aborigines League had prepared to the German ambassador um, a number of years later, which they then received. Um, so again, it's it's that thing where you know if you've got enough patience and enough time, um, you can get the message through eventually. <laughs> yes, indeed. We we'll go back to that that art quote. <laughs> 
<laughs> if you could find it, that'd be fantastic. Uh, so we're we're still looking for that one. I think Mick's uh, chasing it up right Arc now. Ark of Justice or something. You know, Ark of Justice. Like uh, check that yeah. out, Mick. I've got a, a text here that I'll read to you. It says, uh, "Can you confirm? From what I've read, William Cooper was not against Australia Day, but he did invent the day of mourning in response to the 1938 sequential." Uh, os- uh, sequential of Australia, that's right. He also proposed the Sunday before Australia Day be known as Aborigines Day and run concurrently with the Australia Day to draw attention to the decimation of the Indigenous population since white settlement. That's from Johnny Coburg. Um, yeah, there's, there's so that's... Uh, things, that happened, didn't it? Yeah, so that was a, um, on the 150, um, 150th anniversary of the first fleet um, arriving at uh, Sydney Cove. Um, uh, William Cooper and, and a number of other... Um, uh, Aboriginal advocates in Sydney, like people like uh, uh, Bill Onus, um, all got together in Australia at Australia Hall um, in Sydney and proposed that the nation um, uh, call January the 26th the day of mourning to recognise um, the wrongs that have been committed against uh, Aboriginal people. So again, that's it was kind of like a you know you can imagine it was kind of like a radical act um, at the time, way back in 1938. This this happened. It's, it's still getting attention, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's uh, they were well ahead of their time. And again, if you look at the way that um, attitudes are changing towards Australia Day, seemingly year on year, um, you can you, you actually realise again, it's sort of like how far ahead of um his time, him mm. and some of his some contemporaries were because um. It was a it was a it was a radical act to to do that at the time, and if you actually think about it, um, uh, the the day of mourning itself is actually, um, I think it's about five years uh, older than the formal recognition of um, Australia Day as it was to become a public holiday. <laughs> moving on, so, 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 the, the, yeah, so the day of mourning is actually older than the official Australia <laughs> that's Day. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's we, a, we got in first. Uh, yeah. Uh, look, uh, I got it. I mean, some of the failed policies of governments at the time, assimilation and integration. He had a very uh, forthright way of uh, batting that back as well, didn't he? Still, these are just failed policies. It's a, these are never going to work. And the policies or the f- thoughts that he did put forward are ones that uh, have survived in many ways, and you know, provide a much uh, more interesting uh, overview of how to deal with Indigenous uh, problems than assimilation or integration did. Yeah, well, what what I think um, uh, people started to recognise on on the missions is that the further away decision-makers, i.e. protection boards um, around the place, were from the people they were making decisions about, the worse those decisions were. And I think that's why he started um, thinking about, you know, representation within within the Parliament of Australia. Um, the King setting aside a, a couple of seats, at least, for um, for First Nations people, so they could be at the centre of decision making. Now that kind of sounds a little bit um, similar to to what's happening um, at, at the moment, mm. in a way. Um, and I often get asked, you know, what um, uh, what William Cooper would think about the proposal around around the voice. And I think he'd be broadly supportive of it, but he, I think at the same time he'd probably be thinking, well, we deserve more, um, which, is a, which is a position that a lot of Aboriginal people um, 
around the place still have in relation to sure. to the voice and and um you know that that that's given what's happened that's an understandable position to to take but i think i think he would have broadly been supportive of the the voice and the way the voice came about through the Uluru dialogues because I, I know that he was a certainly a um uh, uh, big on collaboration and um, getting consensus um, around the place, and that's what happened through the Uluru Dialogues. That's one thing that struck me as uh, the, the consensus and dialogue, and uh, as I said, a very smart cookie he was. Um, and it seems incredible, really, because the sorts of things he was saying are exactly the things that we're, we're dealing with in the voice debate at the moment, and this is, we're talking back in the 1930s, this took place, so... That just yep. goes to show you how long, um, you know, how long that debate's been going, and it's still yeah, but still going. you know, in terms of, in terms of consensus, I think the fact that he packed up and um, uh, moved to to Footscray, um, in a sort of a humble little house. He he lived in a few houses around Footscray, but um, uh, the one where the Australian Aborigines League is still there in South Southampton Street, um, Footscray. Um, I think the fact that he came to his people instead of insisting as an elder um, the other way around, shows you how uh, passionate he was about um, garnering support and a consensus and, mm. and actually building an organisation that can, you know, represent a wide range of views within the Aboriginal community at the time. No, right. I've got here, this is quite an interesting one. Daniel, is Daniel aware that one reason William Cooper supported the Jewish cause in the 30s was his gratitude to the Jewish orchardists in the Shep region uh, for whom he had worked as a young man? They had apparently paid him full wages, etc., at a time when that was not usual practice toward Indigenous workers. That's no, from, no, uh, Margaret. I did, I did, no, I didn't know that, Margaret. Hmm. I, um, uh, that's that. That would be an interesting um, story to follow up on because, um, you know, he was a he was a uh, he was a big man. He was like um, well over six foot for his time, which at the time was big. Still is quite big. Uh, very broad, um, very broad shouldered, um, very striking looking man. Um, has what I term um, a world a world class moustache. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but he was a, he was a labourer. In and around um, northeast Victoria, but he was also um, a shearer that travelled, um, you know, the breadth and width of the country. I mean, he would be away from um, places like Cumberland, like another a lot of other um, manual labourers at the time for months at a time because they would go where the work was. Yeah. Um, but it would be yeah, it'd be fascinating to know more about that um, that little story for sure. When I saw the photo of him, I thought very dapper looking man. I was very surprised to read down that he did cheering and all that the uh, labouring work because he, yeah, as you said, that's a hell of a moustache he's got on his. On his <laughs> he top was actually he was actually uh, a delegate for the um, Australian Workers Union or the iteration of that uh-huh. um, at the time. So he actually wrote. I mean, I think that says something about his his presence and his passion and his ability to talk in public is that he actually um, became one of the uh, the first, well, if not the first Aboriginal delegate for um, for a union um, in the country. So he would go around and, uh, you know, uh, check on the, uh, the, the large numbers of Aboriginal men that were working in the shearing sheds around the country at the time and make sure that they were being looked after and supported. Um, and I think that's probably where he got his confidence to go on and um, become a, a, an advocate more broadly. I just need to follow up a little bit on his family because he had a lot of kids 
and they've obviously yep. had a lot of kids. Um, some pretty famous relatives too, some pretty famous descendants. One, of course, is which uh, is surpassed the Doug Nichols, who is one of his, yes. one of his grandkids, I think. So that, that was um, it's actually his nephew. Nephew. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really complicated um, because his, his mother, Kitty, who was um, there at the point of first contact, had um, a, a number of children to um, a couple of men that um, not, none, of the, none of the children subsequently had anything to do with, but some of them were um, Atkinson and um, some of them were Coopers. And so it, <laughs> in terms of trying to untangle, yeah. um, you know, who's related to, to who, um, it's kind of like trying to work out the mystery of the universe at times. Because, <laughs> but, um, I mean, Doug Nichols, <laughs> Doug Nichols was a hugely formative figure, obviously played AFL football, went on to be governor of South Australia and, you know, was a political activist as well. Did much of uh, William's, William Cooper's legacy rub off, do you think, on Doug Nichols? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think um, uh, uh, Doug was kind of um, a protege. He was someone that um, William went out of his way to try and bring into the league. Um, apparently, Doug was um, kind of hesitant at first. He, he wasn't um, seeing his path as being a political or, or a religious one. But um, after um, you know quite a deal of coaxing, he came into to the league. And eventually, um, after uh, William Cooper passed away in uh, 1941, um, uh, and after the war, because the war was obviously a huge disruptor, he actually came up and, and started heading the uh, uh, the league mm. himself. He'd uh, be a great subject in itself, Doug Nichols. We'll have to look at him as well. Uh, I've got here, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So thank you, That's Peter. The one. Yeah, a few people, yeah. Fiona said that as well. Hey, thanks. Daniel, it's been great talking to you this morning. Great to be able to talk about uh, William Cooper, and uh, thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, Pat. I've enjoyed it. Daniel James, Jordi Gordon-Brider, broadcaster. He's currently working on a book all about William Cooper on ABC Radio.